thankful I am for what God is doing in this place. Daniel chapter number three, Brother Brown's been gracious enough tonight to allow me to set up a table out back and and uh, all the books and the preaching on that table, I use the monies to go spend time with missionaries every year and, and preaching in churches like Bible Baptist Church around the world. I uh, was scheduled this year at the end of the year to be in the country of Russia preaching, and, and Mr. Putin had different ideas, I think, so, so far anyway. But uh, Lord willing, I'll be in the land of Cambodia preaching the Word of God. And, and uh, every year we take a number of weeks and just spend some time in different churches on that table in the back, there's a number of books that God's allowed us to write. You know, when it comes to the final section of the Old Testament, the scholars call it the minor prophets. Well, there's a lot of major preaching in those so-called minor prophets. And, and uh, the, over the years, we've written eight books from that part of the Bible, eight down and four to go. They're available as well as some uh, books written for teenagers, young people, and, and uh, then a, a series of books on the Bible. You know, sometimes I think we make a big mistake. We kind of get the idea that my seminary professor needs to beat up your professor. But there's one thing we have going for us. When it comes to this matter of the Bible, we have the Bible on our side. Good luck trying to find a verse that says God didn't preserve his word. Or good luck trying to find a verse that says the Bible's not the perfect inspired word of God. No, the Bible can handle this very well. Thank you. And, and uh, there's a series of little books back there we wrote just exalting and magnifying and honoring the Word of God and uh, some preaching in print. And, and so we trust those books will be an encouragement to you. If you do the, uh, the e-book thing, they're all available at Amazon as well. And uh, all those books are written for people in independent Baptist churches, just like Bible Baptist Church that uh, you love your Bible and love your Lord, and, and uh, we trust the Lord will use them. In addition, there's a, a collection of preaching available on the table, 707 messages on a thumb drive. Uh, you say, what's a thumb drive? The books are for you, what can I tell you? But uh, that little thumb drive, we've been able to put, uh, we had about 50 or 60 messages a year, and, and so the preaching is there, the books are there, and trust they'd be an encouragement and help, and, and we turn around and use that for missionaries so uh, hopefully it's a win-win for him. God bless you tonight. That's the commercial for the week. And I, I thank you for your faithfulness to God's house. You have your Bible tonight to Daniel chapter number three. And, and of course, the chapter begins with the mightiest man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar. He builds an image to his religion, an idol almost 100 feet tall. You know, the word of God tells us that it is made of gold. That is such a massive thing that the Bible deniers, the liberal seminary professors say, well, obviously it wasn't made of gold. It must have been gold-plated or overlaid with gold. No, obviously it was made of gold because that's what God said. Let God be true in every liberal cemetery professor a liar. And, and this massive thing, can you just imagine, with the sun rising in the plains of Dura and glistening off this golden idol, it must have been a massive, massive thing. And of course, for the dedication service, King Nebuchadnezzar calls for the law enforcement, for the military, for the judiciary, for the sheriffs, everybody who's anybody has shown up in the plains of Dura for the dedication of this image. You know, it wasn't very far from that idol, not far at all, 
that centuries earlier they tried something similar. It was called the Tower of Babel. Nebuchadnezzar could have opened up his Bible and seen how that one turned out. That's pretty much the way things are going to wind up in Daniel chapter number 3. But no, Nebuchadnezzar gathers everybody for the dedication service. He says when the praise band plays, everybody is going to bow their knee and they are going to worship the image that I have set up. And as long as you worship my religion and my idol, all is well. But if not, you'll be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And of course, you know the story. The music begins to play. And you know, the Bible rather indicates that it was screeching noise. It wasn't a beautiful melody. It wasn't like a symphony playing. It was more just like ear-shattering, screeching music. Kind of like what modern houses of religion sound like. And, and, and why it was just deafening. And as the music plays, please don't misunderstand. This is not going out to lunch where everybody kind of gives it one of these and bows their head at the table. This is people kind of like in a mosque, bowing prostrate with their foreheads in the dirt. It is not like these three young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It is not like they think, you know, maybe they won't know. These boys understand there is no way we won't be found out. So when the music plays and everybody bows to the image, to the idol, to the religion of Nebuchadnezzar, these young men stand up straight and they stand up tall. And by the way, they would appreciate it tonight if we could get their names right. The Bible tells us their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were kidnapped from their homes in Jerusalem. They were dragged off to the land of Babylon. And one of the first things that happens is they throw them in a conference room and they say, boys, we don't like your names because we don't worship Jehovah around here. So we're going to give you new names that honor our pagan deities. Each one of these young men had an appropriate name that honored the God of the Bible but they were given new names that honored pagan idols, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These boys would really appreciate it if we could get their names right. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as the music plays and everybody bows down to worship the idol, three boys stand up straight and three boys stand up tall. And the next thing you know, they are dragged in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And the king is as angry as that man could be. Yet he he almost has that attitude, I'm going to be a good guy, and I'm going to give you one more shot. So in Daniel 3, verse number 15, now if ye be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kind of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, he shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And all of a sudden, the entire chapter is about to change. Right here at the end of verse number 15, the entire chapter is going to change. Because up until this point, it was Nebuchadnezzar against Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But now Nebuchadnezzar is going to go to the place of no return. Notice his question in your Bible. He said, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Everything just changed. This is no longer three young men against a king. This is now the story of the mightiest man in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, against Almighty God. I got to tell you, the poor guy doesn't have a chance. Nebuchadnezzar has just dragged Almighty God into this equation. Who is this God that shall deliver you out of my hands? 
Well, the rest of the chapter is going to be Almighty God answering that question. And in verse number 17, one of the boys is about to speak. And, you know, we don't even know which one does the talking. Whatever, whichever one of these three young men speaks, here it is. And I got to tell you, if you get one chance to speak in the Bible, and that's all, that's the only time they talk, you get one chance to speak in the Bible, it'd be awfully hard to do better than this. Whoever does the talking, well, let's just say he hits a grand slam. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But this is powerful. But if not, you know, modern religion says name it and claim it. Modern religion says you rebuke the fire and turn the fire out. Modern religion says you tell God what he is going to do. Uh, these boys would not fit well in modern religion because these boys said we may live or we may die. But whether we live or whether we die doesn't change anything. Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So in verse number 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Bible says, therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Father, we pray for your help and your blessing tonight. May our attention be right on the word of God and may your words do mighty works in our hearts and lives. I pray for men, ladies, Lord, I pray especially for young people and teenagers in this building tonight. Lord, I pray you would find those with the courage of these three young men who are willing to say, I will follow Jesus no matter the cost, no matter the outcome. Now, if someone in this room has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, as these boys are about to be rescued from a burning, fiery furnace, what a wonderful night to be rescued from the burning, fiery hell. So we ask for your help and your power in Jesus' great name. Amen. One seven times hotter. Uh, an old-fashioned way of saying make that thing seven times hotter than it's supposed to be. You know, this huge furnace, most likely it was a smelting furnace where they would melt the gold so that they could make that massive idol. It was huge. It was so large four people could walk around. A furnace like this in Babylon 2,500 years ago was, no like, uh, was likely made out of adobe. There was a hole in the top, a huge hole that, that they would throw these young men down from that hole why the smoke would rise to the sky and a furnace like this would have another door on the side where they would shovel in the fuel an adobe furnace 2500 years ago in Babylon the likely fuel would have been charcoal and King Nebuchadnezzar is so angry and King Nebuchadnezzar is so upset I mean we know that it's a burning raging fiery furnace uh, but I I'm afraid the face of the king matched that furnace he is as hot as he can be just throw the coal in there get that thing seven times hotter and I mean if you could imagine with me tonight there are billowing clouds of black smoke that are reaching to the sky I, that furnace must have changed colors you can feel it you, you know even worse and, and firefighters will tell you you know you can see pictures and videos of fires but hearing what it sounds like is the brutal thing 
And I mean to tell you, the fire must have been raging. You could hear it a mile away. I mean, from the smoke to the heat to the fire to the sound, what an incredibly fearsome thing. What a terrorizing moment it was. And Nebuchadnezzar said, you defy me. That's where you go. And now in his rage and in his fury, the Bible tells us the fire is seven times hotter. You know, ladies and gentlemen, an angry man does foolish things. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and in his fury, is about ready to do what angry men do. He's going to do foolish things. In verse number 20, he commanded his most mighty men that were in his army. There's no need to do that. Little children could have thrown those boys into the fire. Nobody is going to stop him now. I, you don't need your most mighty men. But in his rage and in his fury, get my best soldiers. Get my mightiest men. His anger is going to cost him dearly. Then the Bible tells us these mighty men were to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these mighty men were to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Would you, in your mind, notice that word bind tonight? You see, in Bible times, of course, in our times, if we're sitting at a computer and we want to write a paragraph, there's a lot of things we can do to show emphasis. You know, you can make a, a, a words in bold. You can put them in italics. Uh, you can change the color, the font, the font size. There's a lot of things you can do to make words jump off a page. But you can't do any of these things if you're writing on an animal skin or on a papyrus leaf. So in the Bible, when you see something that is repeated in a very short space, that is pretty much God's way of making it bold. That is pretty much God's way of saying, let it jump off the page. If you missed it the first time, make sure you get it the second time. And the words you're going to see bounce off the page again and again. Well, it's that word bind. It's almost like the Lord says, you know, everything's moving awfully fast here. And the king is as hot as that fire. And the king says, get it seven times hotter and get my mightiest men. But God says in the midst of all the hurry, in the midst of all the fear, in the midst of all the anger and all the wrath, God says, take a look at those boys and their wrists because God says they have bound them. Perhaps they even put the ropes around their ankles, but for sure around their wrists. The Bible tells us the boys are bound. In verse number 21, these men were bound, there it is again, in their coats, in their hosen, their hats, and their other garments. A Jewish young man would wear five articles of clothing. There would be an inner robe, an outer robe, a turban on his head. There would be a sash, a belt they could stick their robe in if they had to move in a hurry. And then there would be sandals on their feet. So the Bible tells us that these boys are going to be thrown into the fire and they're going to be thrown into the fire with all their clothing on. And one more time, we are reminded that an angry man makes silly mistakes. You know, being an executioner in Bible times, and I guess in our times, is not exactly the most pleasant of jobs. And in Bible times, there weren't a lot of perks if you were an, uh, an executioner, but there was one. The executioner was allowed to take the clothing of the victim. And that, of course, happened at the cross of Calvary. And they stripped the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four Roman soldiers that are responsible to crucify a man. The clothing of Jesus, the five articles were divided among the four men. And then they took his robe, that beautiful, seamless robe. And normally they would take a knife and slice it into four sections. But it was such a beautiful robe, they decided to cast lots to see whose it would be. And little do they know as they throw their dice... Little do they know as they cast their lots that they are literally fulfilling a 1,000-year-old scripture. 
I mean, isn't it fascinating? Those soldiers at the cross, they scream, prophesy, prophesy. They blindfold Jesus and say, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And they were so ignorant, they didn't even know that their question was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Well, one more time, the executioners are there. And while it is expected they get the articles of clothing, well, Nebuchadnezzar was too angry. And of course, the Lord is going to use his anger for his glory. God made sure that they were thrown with all their clothing into the burning, fiery furnace. And in verse number 22, because the king's commandment was urgent, so we know it was severe, throw those men in the fire. But now the Bible says it is urgent. Do it and do it right now. And the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, we can't imagine such a scene. It must have been an incredibly dangerous moment. I mean, that fire must have been ready to wipe everything out. You could just see the smoke rising to the sky. You could just see the flames. I mean, it just reads in the Bible. You could see the flames just leaping out of this furnace. And these most mighty men that are responsible to throw those boys down into the hole, into the midst of that burning, fiery furnace, why those flames reach up and lick them and they are instantly destroyed in that massive fire. And so the Bible says in verse number 23, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and notice, here it is again. One more time, God says, let's take the camera of the word of God and take a good close look at their wrists, maybe even their ankles, because the Bible says they fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. God says, don't forget that. They were bound when they were thrown inside the fire. Well, from verse number 23 to verse number 24, evidently a little bit of time goes by because Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to go take a look. And, and, you know, when you study the life of Nebuchadnezzar, it really is an amazing story. There's only one unsaved king that gets more ink in the Bible than Nebuchadnezzar, and that would be the pharaoh of Egypt. Really, the Lord has a lot to say about the Nebuchadnezzar story, and I, I think it's one of the great stories of the Old Testament. I, I know some people see this different, but I'd like to believe Believe that the last story in Nebuchadnezzar's life is the story of a man getting saved. But you know, the one thing that kept him from Christ was that arrogance and that pride. Why do I need God? Don't you know who I am? And for four chapters, it seems like the Lord is just chipping away and the Lord is working on him. And he had a tremendous man named Daniel who loved to turn people to righteousness and why Daniel was constantly working on Nebuchadnezzar and constantly giving him the gospel. And, and now here is Nebuchadnezzar and his arrogance. I mean, even the last story in the Bible of Nebuchadnezzar, there he is looking up and saying, I'm not I, great Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not I, the mightiest and the greatest of all time. And, and the Lord would strike him with insanity for the next seven years. Well, you can almost see the look on his face in Daniel 3. I mean, you can almost smell the haughtiness. It just rises off of his body. And just that attitude and just that arrogance. There is proud and then there is arrogant. And you can almost see this narcissist as he says, I'm going to take a look. And I'm going to go take a look in that burning, fiery furnace. And I'm going to find me a bone. And I'm going to find me a tooth. Then I'm going to hang it on the wall and say, that's what happens to you if you ever defy me. And so no doubt he goes to the furnace. By now it must have cooled down some. And, and he tells the servant to open up the fuel door, I would guess. And, and Nebuchadnezzar takes a look inside. And right about here, 
This is where when we get to heaven, I hope there's a photo gallery called the look on their faces. And wouldn't there be some classic ones here? Uh, wouldn't you love to see the look on Potiphar's wife's face? You know, her husband comes home for lunch, and, and she's pouring the lentil soup, and, oh, hey, sweetheart, any new news in the kingdom? And he says, yeah, you're not going to believe it. We got a brand new prime minister, a brand new number two man. And she says, really, is it anybody we know? And the, and the Potiphar laughs and says, you're not going to believe this. Remember the guy who used to work around here named Joseph? Wouldn't you love to see the look on her face? How about the look on the face of David? You know, for one year, pretty much, he, he covered up his sin. He got the broom out. He swept all the tracks away. There's only a handful of people who know, and I can run them. And yet there was one guy in the kingdom that David always had to worry about. And one day, David's sitting on the throne thinking everything's good, and all of a sudden, he looks up, and walking through the door is Nathan the prophet. Wouldn't you love to see the look on David's face? How about the look on the faces in Matthew chapter 7? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. How about the look on Haman's face? You know, when he's thinking the king is going to honor and glorify me. And the king says, yeah, do all that for your mortal enemy, Mordecai. I got to tell you, there are some classic moments in the Bible. I call it the look on their faces. But I think for me, my number one all-time favorite look on their faces, well, it'd be right here in verse number 20. In fact, the Bible gives us a very unique word. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. Astonished. You know, I, I forever read that word, and I just assumed, well, you know, when God gave us our, our Bible, our 1611 Bible, astonished, that's how they wrote astonished. However, if you get an 1828 Webster's Dictionary, and by the way, after you get a King James Bible, the next best book you can have is an 1828 Webster's Dictionary, the closest dictionary of that time frame. There's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that if you get it at Amazon, it's like 75 bucks. The good news is if you go to Google.com, it's like free. So pick your poison. But, but it's a tremendous help. And you know, the word astonished is a unique word. It, it, it means like astonished. It's a very similar word. But no, astonished is its own word. If I could say it, astonished is astonished on steroids. And I mean to tell you, the Bible tells us he was not just astonished. He was the next level beyond astonished. He was astonished and rose up in haste and spake unto his counselors. And, and you talk about the most obvious question in the Bible. Did not we cast three men? There it is again bound him to the midst of the fire. They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loosed. If we were to say tonight nothing was burned in the fire, we'd be making a big mistake, wouldn't we? Oh, oh, it is true. When the boys come out of the fire, uh, uh, their clothing, you can't smell smoke on it. Why, they look at their arms, they look at their eyebrows, not a hair on their body is singed. They don't smell it, they don't look at it. But if you and I walk away saying nothing burned in that fire, we'd be missing the point, wouldn't we? God put the attention four times on the shackles. God said, look at those ropes around their wrists. And while their hats weren't burned and their hair wasn't singed, while not a clothing piece of their body was destroyed, there was something that went up in smoke in that fire. Those shackles that are around the hands and maybe the ankles of those boys, they lasted about as long as the most mighty men lasted. The Bible tells us they are burned up and they are gone. 
I see four men loosed. And then he said, and they're walking. Don't you love that? He didn't say they're running around in panic. And excuse me, he didn't say they're flying through the air like ghosts. He said, there are four men and they're just taking a stroll. They're four in that fire and they're just walking, talking, having a good old time. I mean, they may as well be walking down a countryside. They may as well be taking a hike up in the mountains of California. He said, I see four men. There's no panic. There is no fear. There is no screaming. There is no shouting. There is no crying and there is no panic. He said, there's four men walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt. And then... He said, and the form of the fourth is like. Uh, that all depends on which Bible you have. Oh, no, no, this is why this stuff is really important. It really all depends which Bible you have. See, if you have the Bible that comes from the liberal, unsaved scholars of the World Council of Churches, if you have one of their Bibles of one of their grandchildren Bibles, do you know what this verse says? For example, if you have the Bible called the Revised Standard Version, not so popular now, but that was the granddaddy of them all when these liberal scholars rewrote the Bible. Do you know what this verse says? Nebuchadnezzar looked in and he said, there's four, and the form of the fourth, listen carefully, is like a son of the gods. Really? A son of the gods? I think I've met a few Jehovah Witnesses that would certainly appreciate that. A son of the gods? If you have one of the other stepchildren Bibles of the World Council of Churches, like the Good News Bible, the Good News Bible turns into the Bad News Bible here. It has Nebuchadnezzar saying, well, the form of four kind of looks like an angel. The New International Version, it looks like a son of the gods. And the very popular on the campi of some fundamentalist universities called the ESV tells us Nebuchadnezzar said that is a son of the gods. Forgetting anything else, do you know how bizarre and ridiculous that is? It's pretty hard for people that are so smart with so many degrees and so many letters after their name. Yeah, it has to be pretty hard to be that stupid. And I'm sorry, but what else do you say? Do you know what they're asking people to believe? Well, excuse me, the reason those boys are in the fire is because they have defied the idol. They have defied the God of Nebuchadnezzar. They have defied these That's why they're in the fire in the first place. And these modern Bibles written by the brilliant that are so much smarter than the rest of us, these modern Bibles want us to believe that the idol sent his son after these boys got thrown in the fire for defying him, and the son of the idol rescues them. Excuse me. Everybody and their mother knows that idol is made of gold. That's why that smelting furnace is probably there. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows it's an idol of gold. Now, it could be, you know, somewhere else, an idol of brass stone, silver stone, wood, whatever. But everybody knows that's an idol of gold. Everybody knows human hands made it. Everybody knows that's dead. Everybody knows that idol has no life. And I am sorry to break the bubble here, and I'm sorry to try to teach somebody's skull or something, but idols don't have children. No, I may be breaking news here. Maybe real. I may be getting a little too deep now. But idols of gold, they don't have kids. And you see what these scholars? 
They're so brilliant. They're so smarter than God. They want us to believe that Nebuchadnezzar looked in there and there is, there's no such thing. There's no such animal as a son of the gods. And they want us to believe he looked in there and said, the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods. How bizarre. And I don't know if he was like, well, you know, these Bible translation issues, they're not that important. Brother, if you're Hananiah, Mishael, or Nazariah, it's really important. It may not be important to you, but it was awfully important to them. Because either the modern Bibles that come from the liberal scholars at the World Council of Churches are correct, and that is a son of the gods, or, or, my Bible says that when he looked inside, he said the form of the fourth is like the son of God. And, of course, you can almost hear. You can almost hear the liberal scholars as they laugh and they scoff and they say, well, now, wait a minute. How could a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar recognize the Son of God? Hmm. And there's an easy answer to that. I'll get to it in a second. But the better question is how could a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar look in the fire and recognize a son of the gods because the Son of God is real. And excuse the grammar, there ain't no such thing as a son of the gods. But leaving that aside, do you know how he could look in that fire and recognize the Son of God even though he was a pagan idolater? Do you know how he knew Jesus? Because Daniel told him. And he said, oh, how do you know that? Oh, there's a lot of reasons how I know that. Because when you read the book of Daniel, every time you turn around, Daniel's witnessing to somebody. Daniel's telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is witnessing in chapter 1. He's witnessing in chapter 2. He's witnessing in chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 4, 5, and 6. Then when you get to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has more than one, many personal meetings with Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. In fact, if you think that Daniel was in the den of lions all by himself, you might want to reread Daniel chapter 6. He wasn't there alone. And you know the crowning thing that God said about Daniel? In Daniel chapter 12, when the Lord gives us the synopsis, the epitaph of Daniel's life, he says, let me tell you about Daniel. Daniel spent his life turning people to righteousness. Please don't misunderstand. This is not Daniel walking around pointing his finger at people saying, you do the right thing, you do the right thing, you do the right thing. Do right, do right. That's not what he's doing. When it says Daniel turns people to righteousness, that means that Daniel, the great soul winner, is turning them to the righteousness of Christ. You know how Abraham was saved? Abraham was saved believing that one day the righteousness of Christ is applied to his account. The only way a sinner like Abraham, Noah, David, Daniel, or any other Old Testament saint would ever go to heaven is because once they're a sinner and the blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary washed their sins away and the righteousness of Christ was placed on their account. You and I are saved the exact same way. Sinners saved by grace. The blood of Christ washes our sins away and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to our account. Daniel spent his life turning people to the righteousness of Christ. He said, well, how could Daniel recognize Jesus? I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, because Daniel told him all about him. 
and, and though he wasn't even a saved man, he was smart enough to look in that fire and say, I know exactly who that is. That's the one that Daniel's been telling me about for years now. That's the one that Daniel knows. That's the one that Daniel keeps talking about. That's why he could look in the fire and he didn't come up with some silly figment of his imagination that scholars who don't believe the Bible want to apologize for what the God, the, the God's word says. He could look in that fire and say, I know exactly who that is. That is the Son of God. What a story. Three young men stand up tall and say, we don't know what it's going to cost us and we don't know what the price is, but we would rather die than disobey the word of God. God said commandment number one, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down to them. Young men stand up tall and say, we're not going to disobey the word of God. It may be we get thrown into the burning fiery furnace. It may be that our lives are taken away. You understand the boys haven't read Daniel chapter 3 yet. But they're saying whether we live or whether we die is immaterial. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. No matter the cost, no matter the price, we're going to give our lives to follow the word of God. Oh, Brother Brown, would that there were some teenagers and young people in this room tonight that were just like Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. It doesn't matter what the kids at school think. It doesn't matter what the neighbors down the road think. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. If I am the only man, if I am the only lady, if I am the only woman, one in the whole state of California. I'm going to stand up for Jesus. I'm going to stand up for the word of God. I'm going to stand up no matter the cost and no matter the price. If it be so, our God whom we serve, he's more than able to deliver us from that burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But here's where the courage comes in. Here's where the conviction comes in. When some young man, when some young lady says, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image. Excuse me, king, we don't need another chance because the answer doesn't change. We're going to do what's right. Oh, for that kind of courage and that kind of conviction, if God would raise up those young people right here in Bible Baptist Church, what a difference it would make in this corner of California. Courage, strength, love for Christ. These young men are amazing. And so you come to the end of Daniel chapter 3 and kind of ready to put a, a bow on one of the most exciting, one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. Three young men say for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. Whether we live or whether we die, we are not going to back down from the word of God. But you know, just before you put this chapter to bed for the night, there is this one more thing. And, and, you know, maybe you've never, ever thought about this. But I'll tell you, you know, the people that are so much smarter than us, they think about this kind of thing. And, and this really becomes a problem for some. And, and they read Daniel chapter 3, and there really is this kind of, it's kind of like the fly. You know, it's kind of like a mosquito. It just keeps flying around, and you just can't get rid of it. And, and there's this nagging little thing in Daniel chapter 3. And you may never have thought much about this, but a lot of people have. And the question goes like this. Where's Daniel? Because when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel's all over chapter 1, all over chapter 2. He's everywhere you look in Daniel 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. But all of a sudden, he is more than conspicuous by his absence. 
where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? And you know, the experts come along, and I got to tell you, if you get 100 preachers, you get 101 different ideas. Where's Daniel? Where's well, you know, Daniel was on a business trip. No, Daniel was sick, or Daniel was this, or Daniel was that. And, and, and you know, I, I mean, one more time, you, you folks, you've done good coming to church on Monday night. And what can I tell you? I'm going to give you the answer to the question, where's Daniel? You know, I did this yesterday. I'm going to do this again. This is not hard. I don't have a possible answer. I don't have, it could be an answer. No, I have the answer to the question, where's Daniel? And the answer is, I don't know. And Brother Brown doesn't know. And you don't know. And you know how I know that I don't know and he doesn't know and you don't know and the experts don't? Because the Bible doesn't say. However, this does play an important part in Daniel chapter 3. Because everywhere you turn, there's Daniel, there's Daniel. And all of a sudden, and, and I mean, if there was ever a time, and you know, you know and I know, it's one thing to go to a burning, fiery furnace, and, and then it's you know, kind of the same thing, is it not, to go to the den of lions. So it's not like we question Daniel. It's not like we're left to wonder about Daniel. And, and we watch Daniel's courage and conviction, and, and, and it's not like we think he's in there bowing down with all the rest of the pagans. Of course not. But then there still is the question, Where's Daniel? And can I show you why it's an important question? In Daniel chapter 1, verse number 8, I, I, I hope every young person in this room tonight under the age of 20 has memorized Daniel 1.8. If you haven't, you should. I hope everybody in this place tonight over the age of 20 has memorized Daniel 1, verse number And if you happen to be 20, you ought to memorize this too. Daniel 1.8 is so powerful. Daniel's been kidnapped, and the princes, these young men, they have been kidnapped from their homes in Jerusalem. And now they have been brought in, and they got to be thinking it's going to be slave labor for us. But instead, they sit in the room, and, and a representative of the greatest man in the world, this representative says three things, boys. Number one, you get new names. Number two, you get a free scholarship to the university where you're going to learn science, math, history, but you're also going to learn how to worship our gods. And then number three, from here on out, and they got to be thinking they're going to kill us. But instead, you're going to eat from the king's table. That means the greatest chefs in the world are going to prepare your meals. Baby back ribs, fried shrimp. They're going to eat the best foods in the world. These guys, they must have thought, they walked into meat, they're going to kill us, and now they're walking outside. Well, we, ever, we ever fall of a tree and landed on our feet. they got to be awfully happy, but then there's that verse, isn't there? But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. That's stunning. Have you ever thought that through? I spent a lot of time thinking about this. What, what would I do? You know, if I was kidnapped tonight by the Canadian Royal Mounted Police and, and I found myself up in northern Alberta or something tomorrow and, and, and you know, they said, we don't like your name. We're going to give you a name that honors the Buddha. I wouldn't be happy about that. And, you know, we're going to sit you in a school. We're going to teach you how to worship our, our premier, you know, Mr. Trudeau, uh, another Fidel Castro. I wouldn't be happy about that. And then they said, and from here on out, you're going to have to eat the baby back ribs and the fried shrimp. I'd probably say, here am I, send me. You know, you got to do something for the Lord. So what hill are you going to die on? What hill am I going to die on? I I'm saying, no, no, you're not changing my name. When my, my parents just got saved when I was born, and they intentionally gave me a name from the Bible, you're not going to give me some name honoring the Buddha. I'm not going to, no, no, no. I am not sitting in that class and listening to that pagan uh, mock my Savior. And Daniel, he doesn't say anything about the name change. 
I mean, Daniel doesn't seem to be interested in who's teaching the class. But you know what Daniel says? I can't eat the ribs. I can't drink the booze. Daniel purposed. That word purpose becomes the critical word in the book of Daniel for two reasons. One we can see and one in our English we can't do. But the one we can see with our eyes is that purposed is a past tense verb. In other words, it is not that Daniel now they're pouring up the booze in the glass and it's not that they're dishing out the shrimp and Daniel's sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Daniel didn't decide. He had already decided. Somewhere long before he ever had the opportunity to sin, he had already decided, I will not eat that food. I will not drink that booze. Daniel, in his past, had purpose. And this is why your teenagers and your young people, they need to hear your pastor. They need to be at a camp. They need to be surrounded by the preaching of the Bible. They need the Lord to work in their heart. Because when the friends are saying, let's go to the party, or when some wicked guy or some wicked girl says, let's do this, you need choices to have already been made in a good setting like this. Before temptation is knocking on the door. And even Jesus, isn't that what he said? He didn't say, ask the Lord and pray that the Lord will rescue you in the middle of temptation. He said, you better pray because he knows how weak we are. You better pray that the Lord delivers you out of that temptation from ever happening. If you're praying during the temptation, it just might be too late. You better pray before the temptation starts. Somewhere before they're pouring the booze, somewhere before they're dishing out the baby back ribs, Daniel had already decided, my Bible tells me what to eat and what not to eat. Thankfully, our Bible's a little Same Bible, different testament, thankfully. But Daniel, as a Jewish boy, says, I can't drink that. I can't eat that. He had already made up his mind. God, give us some young people, some moms and dads that will make up their time ahead of time. I'm not going there. But there's something else about that word. Purposed is in the past tense. Daniel made up his mind. But in our English language, we can't do this. But many languages can. Some of you know Spanish. They, of course, can do this. That word purposed is a singular verb. What that means is that Daniel, and only Daniel, that Daniel, and all by himself Daniel, had already purposed, I will not defile myself. If you read Daniel 1 very carefully, Daniel by himself purposed, and then, then three young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they watch Daniel take his stand, and they say, wait a minute, Daniel, you're not alone. We're with you. You know, that's a great thing when young people follow good examples. Uh, one of the biggest problems with teenagers is peer pressure. They follow the wrong girl. They follow the wrong guy. They follow them in the wrong place. They follow them to do the wrong things. Well, I got to tell you, may God give Bible Baptist Church some teenagers that will set the right kind of peer pressure. And when you follow somebody who loves the Bible, you follow somebody who loves the Lord, you follow somebody who wants to do what's right, boy, that's a good kind of pressure. And three young men watched Daniel stand up by himself and say, I'm sorry, I can't eat that, I can't drink that. And those boys said, us too. Well, that's a good thing. So now we fast forward to Daniel chapter 3, and the big question is, where's Daniel? Well, he, he's not there. And you know why he's not there? It's because the Lord is saying, okay, boys, back in chapter 1, you had a perfect opportunity to see how to do it. Daniel showed you the way, but Daniel's not here. 
So, gentlemen, what are you going to do? And in Daniel chapter 1, they made a choice to follow the example of Daniel. Brilliant. But in Daniel chapter 3, these boys don't have a Daniel to follow. But you know, they don't need a Daniel to follow. They stand up and say, well, Daniel showed us how. Now the Lord's given us a chance to do it on our own. And my, did they ever get it right. Young people, hear me carefully tonight. It's a wonderful thing to grow up in a good church. It's a great thing to grow up in a Christian family. The young people in this church, you have an opportunity to sit in a Christian school and you, it's astounding. Very few have that and getting less and less. And what that means is you are surrounded every day in your family, in your school, in your church by a pastor, by parents, by teachers, by youth leaders that care greatly for your soul. That's a wonderful thing. But hear me tonight. One day mommy and daddy aren't going to be there. One day Brother Brown isn't going to be there. One day the youth leadership, and they're, they're not going to be there. And one day you are going to be there. You're going to have to make a choice. Because everybody comes to that place in their life where they're going to find out how real they are. Everybody, and it doesn't matter how hard you don't want to, how hard you try to keep it from it, the day is going to come where you're going to have to stand up on a job or you're going to have to stand up in front of your friends and either you're going to honor the Lord or you're going to cave into the pressure. Either you're going to do what's right or you're going to bow your knee to their way. Either you're going to follow the Bible or you're going to follow the leadership of some pretty sorry people. And everybody comes to the place where they have to make a choice. And one day there won't be mommy, there won't be daddy, there won't be pastor, there won't be teacher. One day you're going to have to make your own choice. And when one day came for Hannah and I and Miss Jill and Azariah, brother, did they ever get it right? So I asked the young people of Bible Baptist Church, what's going to happen to you when your one day comes? Where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? He's not there. So, fellas, you better figure it out. What are you going to do? Can I leave you with one other thing? Where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? Well, maybe that's best answered by a songwriter of many years ago, a gentleman named Charles Miles. He, all of his young life, wanted to be a pharmacist, went to school. He had his business started. I mean, his dream come true. A successful man as a young man in his young 20s. He had his pharmacy. He had everything laid in front of him. And then one night in a meeting just like this, he knew that God was calling him to give up his pharmacy career and serve the Lord. Charles Miles said, okay, Lord, whatever you want me to do. And he, he said he walked away from that meeting thinking, God's going to call me to pastor a church. God's going to call me to go to a distant mission field. God's going to call me perhaps to be an evangelist. But none of those things were to happen. Charles Miles was to spend his life writing music. We still sing, more than 100 years later, songs like A New Name Written Down in Glory and Dwelling in Beulah Land. God used Charles Miles in a mighty way. But one day near the end of his life, Charles Miles wanted to write his life's testimony. For years, all I wanted to do was to be a pharmacist, to have my career. And, and yet he said something became more important than that, and that was the will of God. And Charles Miles wrote it like this. It may be in the valley where countless dangers hide. It may be in the sunshine where I in peace abide. But this one thing I know, if it be dark or fair, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. 
It may be I must carry the blessed word of life across the desert spare to the, those in sinful strife. And though it be my lot to bear my colors there, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. It is not mine to question the judgment of the Lord. It is but mine to follow the leading of his word. So if I go or stay, or whether here or there, if I'll be with my Savior content anywhere. And then he wrote this chorus, If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. Is heaven for me, wherever I may be, if he is there. I count it a privilege here, his cross to bear. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. If you're real quiet. Real quiet. If you just listen to your Bible, in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace, in the midst of all the rage, in the midst of the fire and the brimstone, in the midst of the smoke and what you would expect to be the midst of the screams of agony. No, no. If you listen very, very carefully, you can hear three young men singing a little song. If Jesus goes with me, I can go anywhere. So the question, where's Daniel? Where's Daniel? The best answer is, if Jesus goes with me, who needs Daniel? My Father in heaven, I pray tonight that you would do a mighty work in this auditorium, in this place. And if someone has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, may they run to the Savior and be rescued from the wrath of God and the fires of hell. And then, Lord, I pray for your people. I pray holy choices would be made. I pray for young people in this room tonight that this, perchance, would even be the night where they purpose in their heart that they will not defile themselves with the ways and the attitude and the sin of the world. Oh, Lord, I pray that many victories would be won here, victories that may not be known of for years to come. But I pray you would find your Daniel, that you would find your Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in this room tonight. I wonder before I finish praying if someone in this room would say, I need to be saved. It's an amazing story to watch three young men rescued from a burning, fiery furnace. But without Jesus Christ, the Bible says, whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. More than three boys from a burning, fiery furnace. Tonight, if you're not saved, you need to be saved from the eternal lake of fire, and only Jesus can do that. He is not a Savior. He is the Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. I wonder if someone in this room tonight would say, Preacher, I need Jesus to rescue me. I need Jesus to save me from the burning, fiery hell. Is there someone tonight that would say, pray for me? I'm the one who needs to be saved. Would you lift your hand? And I'd love to pray for you tonight. My friend, Brother Brown, wants to help you right out of the Bible because the answer is not religion. The answer is the Savior, Jesus Christ. Is there somebody tonight? That's me. I'm the one who needs to be saved. Pray for me. Pray for me. Now, my Father, we give you the invitation and ask you to break your hearts of your people. And at this altar tonight, may you find people purposing in their heart that they would not defile themselves. Oh, Lord, would you do a work that a preacher can do in the lives of your children. I come boldly in the name of Jesus, my Savior. 
Would you stand together with me prayerfully tonight? And, and as we begin to play the invitation song, of course, if you're not saved, we invite you to come. The preacher's ready to help you tonight. But this altar's a wonderful place for men and ladies, for young people to get on their knees and say, tonight, I purpose in my heart that I will not defile myself. No matter the price, no matter the cost, I make my choice tonight to stay pure for him. What a great place to get on our knees and say, Lord, no matter the outcome, if it be so, no matter what happens, good or bad, I will not forsake my Savior. But choices like the boys made, they all start in a place like this, where we get on our knees and say, my life for Christ, my life for the will of God. Would you make your choice tonight as we play that song for you?